are unified by our shared allegiance to Jesus, there was a lot of amens last week. Because we all love Jesus, right? Jesus, we like. Right? He is awesome. Jesus is good. He's done all kinds of good things in our lives. But once we start saying, hey, we're not only unified by our shared love of Jesus, but we're also unified by our shared love of one another, I'm not sure. Right? How many of you have ever heard, sometimes we even hear within the culture, this idea that can say, Jesus I like, but it's his church that I'm not sure about. It's not entirely unwarranted, right? And I want to tell you that if you're here today and you have experienced significant, like what's called church hurt, you've been hurt by churches before, that what we're talking about here today isn't meant to in any way gloss over legitimate cases where there has been um, abuses or misuse of authority or the misapplication of leadership uh, or community within churches. And in fact, I would tell you, in keeping with what Marisa felt led to how she felt led to lead us in the time of worship today. That if you have been hurt by a church in the past, if you have been hurt by a church leader in the past, I believe that God's presence and his spirit is here today in order to bring healing to that. And in whatever way this could be helpful for you, I would say two things to you if that has been your experience. The first is that God sees you And in whatever way this might be helpful to you, I would say to you, I'm sorry. We get it wrong sometimes. We say the wrong things at times. We do the wrong things at times. There have been moments where churches, leaders have made decisions that have impacted other people's lives and our motives weren't always right. Whatever the case would be, I would tell you today that I'm sorry for what you have experienced. And I pray that even today that you would experience and encounter the presence of God and the Spirit of God in a way that would bring healing to your soul. And so what we're going to talk about today isn't really about, um, you know, that if you have experienced abuse or if you have been on the receiving end of a misuse of authority um, or uh, brothers and sisters who have, you know, treated you terribly, that that's not to say that, well, we just need to tolerate all of that. No, no. What we're going to really share about today is that we shouldn't be treating one another in those ways right? And so it's not to gloss over that, but it is to recognize that God brings us together. And as much as community can be difficult, it's necessary. We don't get to just say, well, I want Jesus, but I don't want to have any part of the community that he has formed. Because we're called to be a part of a family. And in the same way that when you and I are born, we become a part of a family. When you are born again into God's family, you become a part of that family. 
it's being committed to one another it's not always easy because we're not always easy am I right we're not always easy to get along with I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, this uh, thing, they call it the porcupine dilemma, if you've ever heard about this. And it's the idea that during the cold of winter, porcupines will gather together and they'll get really close together is so that they can warm one another in order to survive the cold of winter. But guess what happens when porcupines get really close to each other? Right? Their quills can poke one another. And those poke, those pokes, they can hurt and they can cause a bit of pain. But do you know what happens if a porcupine says, you know what, like I'm tired of getting poked when we get close to one another because that hurts. And so you know what, I'm not going to gather with the other porcupines anymore. I'm going to find a place to be on my own. Guess what happens to the porcupine that says, I'm going to leave that community in order so, so that I don't feel the pain anymore. Those are the porcupines that end up freezing to death because sometimes it can be difficult to endure the pokes and the the things that we experience when we get in close proximity to one another but what I want us to hear today is that the alternative is worse that the alternative is worse listen you can protect yourself from being hurt by others or you can experience the warmth, the warmth of genuine closeness. But you can't experience both. The kind of community that God is calling us to be and the kind of relationships that God is calling us to experience, they sometimes result in our poking one another with the sharp edges of our lives. But, our coming, but although our coming together in a spirit of unity can be hard, I want us to see that according to God, it is not good for man or woman to be alone. It is not good for us to be isolated, to be on an island, to be alone. But we talked about this a handful of weeks ago, is that we were created for community and that you need community and that our community needs you. We were created to be in close proximity to one another. Because although every once in a while there can be the poke that causes a sting or that it causes us to experience a bit of pain, man, the warmth of coming together is something that you can't experience anywhere else. And you know, one of the things that I so love about being a part of a local church community like this is that uh, is that I'm, I'm becoming friends with people that outside of this community and outside of this context, we probably wouldn't ever be friends. And my life is, has been made so much more rich as I have gotten close to and have felt the warmth of brothers and sisters in a spiritual family where maybe without this opportunity to come together, I never would have been able to, you know, I wouldn't have had that, we wouldn't have been friends. And now my life has been more rich because of that. And so it can be hard sometimes, 
but the alternative is worse. But the reward is absolutely worth it. Are you with me? Let's pray together. So Father, we just thank you for this day, for your presence here in our midst. Uh, we thank you for your word that uh, teaches us and instructs us. We thank you that you have brought us together. Lord, I believe that you are building your church according to your purpose, according to your desire. You've brought us together. I pray today that as we open up your word that you would teach us, that you would speak to us, that uh, you would show us how we can be the kind of church that uh, maintains and operates towards one another in a spirit of unity, that we would all feel the warmth of one another's community and friendship and relationship, and as a result, that we would demonstrate to the world what it looks like when Jesus Christ is king, that they would know that you are good and they would know that the gospel we preach is true. Have your way this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, right, unity can be hard. Uh, being in community can be hard. Listen, the struggle is real when it comes to unity, when it comes to getting along, when it comes to existing, coexisting within community. The struggle may be real, but I would suggest to you that it's not new. This is not a new thing. It's not, I know sometimes we can fixate on all the different ways in which people will talk about how things are so divided today, things are so polarized, things are so contentious today. But listen, this is not new. Unity has always been hard. It's always been difficult for communities to come together and to get along. Even in Jesus' 12, you know, those 12, they struggled to stick together. They struggled with unity. You know, there are a couple of Jesus' disciples who before they joined Jesus' crew, they were what's called zealots. They were sort of like Jewish nationalists, if you will. They were um, men and women who were passionate for the nation of Israel, and they were looking for and willing to engage with any and with any and every attempt in order to throw off the, the, uh, the, the covering of Roman occupation. Even if that included violence, they would say, like, I'm in, and where do I sign up? And so the Jesus crew had some of these men that grew up in this kind of zealous community and in this kind of zealous atmosphere. And then you've got a, another disciple whose name is Matthew. And as much as the zealots in Jesus' crew hated the Roman Empire and the occupation that they exerted over uh, Judea, Matthew worked for the government. Before he joined Jesus' crew, he was a tax collector. Do you know there's a, there's a moment in the, in the life of Jesus that we read in the Gospels where uh, some of the Pharisees and some of the religious leaders, they made an accusation against Jesus. And that accusation was that he eats with sinners and tax collectors. I want you to see this. That description couldn't just be left at Jesus eats with sinners. Though there was a whole separate category for people that are worse than sinners. We call them tax collectors. I can't help but wonder sometimes if a couple of the disciples, when they saw Matthew, they were like, I know you. You are the low life, 
that took my money in order to give it to the Romans, and then you even skimmed some of it off the top in order to enrich yourself. Understand that unity, even among the 12, was difficult. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see there were times where the 12 would fight and argue amongst themselves, posturing for position and privilege and prestige. There's a couple of great stories that I find hilarious where we find the disciples arguing about which one of them was the greatest. I'm the greatest of the disciples. No, no, I'm Jesus' favorite. I think there's some truth to the idea that they may have been arguing about which one of them was like better as a disciple. But in truth, you know what they were actually arguing over is they were arguing over which one would succeed Jesus. The idea of greatest was the idea of I am first in line so that when the baton is eventually passed, however that's going to happen, you're all going to be working for me right, was what they were essentially arguing over, right? And so there was division in Jesus 12. You know, in Acts chapter 6, if we fast forward a little bit, the church is still in its infancy. And what do we see? We see conflict happening, cultural conflict happening between what was called the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And there's a conflict where they're arguing over how their widowed family members and, and widowed kind of parts of their community were being taken care of, one group feeling like their community was being neglected in favor of another. And so we see the church being uh, divided through these cultural differences. In 1 Corinthians 1, we see the Corinthian church being divided over their loyalty to leaders. And so one would say, Apollo, he's my guy, right? I am of Paul, or I am of Cephas. And they would uh, divide over which leader they were rallying behind, right? And so we see this division over that. Later in 1 Corinthians, because the Corinthians, man, they really needed to get this principle of unity. Later in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, we see a church that is divided along socioeconomic lines. It tells us that Paul rebukes them because he says what's happening is when it's time for your communion feast, the ones who are in your church who are wealthier and who are more well off, you're coming early to the dinner and you're eating all the food and you're drinking all the wine. And the ones who are poorer in your community and because they're poorer have to work longer hours, they're showing up late and they're having and they're and they're stuck with your leftovers. And so Paul is saying, that is not what this is about. And so we see a church that's divided along these socioeconomic lines. In the Galatian church, we see racial division of Jew versus Gentile. It wasn't just in the Galatian church. This existed in many of the New Testament churches. In the Roman church, there were divisions along the lines of what our conscience would or would not allow us to do. And one person would say, I'm okay with eating this kind of meat. And another person would say, your freedom to do that offends me and you shouldn't do that. And so there were divisions along our ideas and opinions about matters of conscience. And so I just want us to see here that the struggle for unity, this is not a new thing. It's not a new thing. No, no. We've been struggling with one another in order to come together 
for a very long time. We've only covered the New Testament. We can go back into the Old Testament, and you know what we'll see? We'll see from Genesis chapter 4, where one brother kills his other brother, the same storyline repeated over and over and over again. And so Jesus comes along, and in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, he gives his disciples a new command. And he says, a new command that I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's talk about this word love for a moment. Of course, love can have a lot of different meanings, right? We could say, I love the weather here in Albuquerque. I love pizza. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love golf. I love cycling. There's lots of things that we can say that we love where it can have different meanings. We can talk about romance and say, and when we think of love as a romance, I'm so in love with this person. We're talking about our feelings and how we feel this love for this other human being. And do we understand that love isn't really a feeling? You've been watching too many Hallmark movies. I know it's getting to that time of year, right? It's the Christmas season, right? Where the small town boy, right, is gonna connect with the professional woman from New York City who's come back to her hometown for a Thanksgiving break or a Christmas break, and they're gonna reconnect. Sparks are gonna fly. Someone's always moving back to the country town, right? It's never, let's go and move into the city and, you know. But love is not a feeling. It's not blind affirmation of the choices that someone else makes. Again, we live in a culture where often love is set against any standard of how we behave. How dare you criticize that person's behavior? Aren't we just supposed to love one another? Well, if by love, you mean that we just always have warm fuzzies towards one another and we always affirm one another no matter what your choices are, no. No, we're not. So in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, the scripture tells us that God is love. What does this mean? It means that, that love is a motivating factor in everything that God says and in everything that God does, that it is an essential part of his character. Now in Romans chapter 5 verse 8, we see how that characteristic of God, that essential quality, expresses itself. And in Romans 5 8, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in the scriptures, the highest expression of God's love for us is his willingness to sacrifice his own life for our benefit. So in the scriptures, what does love mean? In the scriptures, what does love mean? It simply means this, to will and to act towards the best interest and well-being of another. To will and to act towards the best interests and well-being of another. So I will say this to you, City Church. Love is a major theme in the Bible. And so this certainly won't be the last time that 
you hear me talk about love in some way, shape, or form. Understand that when I talk about love from the Bible's perspective, that is the definition that I am working from. That love means that I desire, that I want, that I will your best interest, and I'm willing to act towards it for your well-being. So, when Jesus says to his disciples that he is giving them this new command that they should love one another, he's not insisting that they should feel a certain way towards one another. He's not insisting that they need to affirm everything about each other or every choice uh, that another person makes. What he is saying is, what he is commanding is that your heart, your motivation, and your actions towards one another should always be I want what is best for you. And not only do I want it, I'm willing to do something about it. Because that's the kind of love that God modeled towards you and I. So, what does loving one another look like? What does loving one another look like? You know, there's like, I'm not sure what the exact number is, but I think there's like a, a hundred one another's like in the New Testament right? We're going to go through all of them today. <laughs> Thanksgiving's on Thursday, right? <laughs> now we're going to go through a handful of those today to help us to just have a little insight, a little understanding of what does it look like for you and I if we are going to be united around a commitment to one another, what does that look like? So what does loving one another look like? The first is it looks like serving one another. It looks like serving one another. In Paul's letter to Galatians, to the Galatian church, in chapter 5, verse 13, he writes, Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another. You know, Jesus, back in the Gospels, when he, was, uh, when he would talk about how, you know, the disciples, they would get kind of all talking about how great they were and posturing for prestige and posturing for position. And Jesus would make the comment, he would say, you know, in the world, leaders and people in authority, like they rule it over others. They're looking for who can I boss around? Who can I command? Who can I direct? I want to be in charge. But he said this, not so with you. That's not the way that it works in my family. In the community that I am building, this is not how it is. No, no. Here, among us, among this spiritual family, among this community of faith, whoever wants to be first or to say, whoever wants to be the most prominent, you have to make yourself the servant of others. It's one of the reasons why at City Church, it has always been one of our values here, that we value servant leadership. Why? Because we see clearly throughout Scripture that His command to us is that we ought to serve one another. So loving one another looks like serving one another. Secondly, is loving one another looks like being kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Being, compa being kind, compassionate, and forgiving. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. 
So I feel like to go back to the illustration of the porcupine, like that there's both sides of this are kind of represented to me in this passage. The kind and the compassionate means that as we are getting closer together, I'm doing my very best. I don't want to poke anybody, right? I don't want the sharp edges of my life to inflict any harm or any pain. I'm wanting to be kind. I'm wanting to be compassionate. Listen, I get that for some strange reason, there are voices in our culture that want to equate kindness with weakness. I would submit to you that the exact opposite is true. That the ability to show kindness is in fact an expression of strength. It's also an expression that I'm doing my best to ensure that the sharp edges of my life, and I do have some of them, that they won't inflict any pain as we get closer together. But then, in recognition of the reality that sometimes we do hurt one another, sometimes we do inflict a bit of pain on one another, the scripture says, forgive one another. Learn how to forgive. Learn how to recognize that sometimes when people get together, this is what happens. We rub each other the wrong way. The sharp edges inflict a bit of pain. There is some friction and some conflict that happens. And when it does, we forgive. We forgive so that we can then move forward, right? And so the scripture says that loving one another looks like being kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Thirdly, what does live, loving one another look like? It looks like encouraging and motivating one another. It looks like encouraging and motivating one another. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, the author of Hebrews writes, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this Greek word that is translated spur in this, um, in this translation, it has the meaning of inciting or provoking. That's why I said we motivate one another because it's this thing that says, if some translations use this word provoke. It says provoke one another to love and good deeds. So it is this idea that we are um, seeing in one another the promise, the purpose, the favor of God and we're calling out of one another the good things that we see and challenging and encouraging one another to persevere and to pursue the good things that God has for them. Uh, last night, uh, I, was, uh, I was watching a, uh, there's a documentary on Netflix about Sylvester Stallone. I started watching it last night and I only got kind of about halfway through it, but in there, as Sylvester Stallone is talking about kind of how he got into acting, he was talking about that he was in college and that he had joined kind of a, uh, like a drama or an acting type community club that was in the college and that they would put on some performances. And he said that I was, he was involved in a, he was in a performance and he said, and in the audience, there was a gentleman who was a, um, a professor that was at Harvard and that he was in like their performing arts school at Harvard. And he said, after 
the, uh, the performance. He said, this gentleman, I, never, I didn't know who he was. He said, he came up to me and he said to me, he said, I think you should think about making this a career. And Sylvester Stallone said, he said, that conversation changed my life. Why? Because somebody saw something in him and took the step, didn't keep it to himself, took the step to say something that would provoke this man to action, provoke him to something. And I just thought, what a great example of what this is, of one way in which we can one another, one another. To see the purpose, to see the promise, to see the grace on one another's lives, to call it out and to encourage and challenge one another, to not give up on all that God has called you to be and to do, to not give up on his promises, to not give up on his purposes, but to look at someone and say, I see something in you. Don't give up on that thing. God deposited that. Come on, give it a chance to bear some fruit. Are you with me? The fourth thing, what does loving one another look like? The fourth thing it looks like is lift one another's burdens. It looks like lifting one another's burdens. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Take a moment and just think about what Paul has just said. That when you and I pick up someone else's burden, when we notice that they're struggling under the weight of just the difficulties of life, right? We all experience them, the ups and the downs and the battles and the, the, the desert seasons, whatever we want to call it. We all know that life is hard. And so Paul says that when you see someone, a brother, a sister, in your spiritual family, in your community, and they seem to be struggling under the weight of the difficulty of this season, and you come along and you lift that burden, you put your shoulder beside theirs in order to provide some relief. Paul says, when you do that, you are fulfilling the law of Christ. So carry one another's burdens. So, what does loving one another look like? It looks like serving one another. It looks like being kind, compassionate, and forgiving. It looks like encouraging and motivating one another. It looks like lifting one another's burdens. Finally, I will, uh, we will end our sermon today with three things on what does loving one another not look like? What does loving one another not look like? Well, it doesn't look like passing judgment. It doesn't look like passing judgment. In Romans chapter 14, verse 13, Paul writes, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. I heard a story about a, uh, a couple that had moved into a new home or a new apartment. And uh, as they were getting settled one morning, as they gathered in the kitchen or whatever to have a coffee or to have some breakfast together, they noticed that their neighbor hung their laundry out to dry instead of doing it in the dryer they did it on a clothesline and the one spouse commented to the other looking at the laundry they said that laundry sure looks dirty you know 
Maybe they are using the wrong laundry detergent or they're doing something wrong, but clearly they don't really know what they're doing when it comes to cleaning the laundry. And over the next handful of weeks, from time to time, as they would gather in the kitchen in the morning, you know, to have a coffee together, you know, and the neighbor had put out the laundry, the one spouse would make the same observation. Somebody really needs to teach that person how to do some laundry because their laundry is always dirty time after time. They're putting it out there as if it's clean, but it's not clean. And they need some, you know, they need some help over there. One morning, about a month or a month and a half after this couple moves in, they congregate in the kitchen and the one spouse who was often pointing out the fault in the laundry next door said, wow, that laundry, look at something's changed. Like that laundry looks clean. Somebody must have told them how to do a better job with their laundry. To which the spouse replied, actually I cleaned the windows this morning. I remember Jesus saying something about a speck and a log. Here's what I've noticed about when I have gotten judgmental towards others. And that is, I seem to be okay judging the actions of others, but I always judge myself on my intentions. We don't mind judging others' actions, but we judge our own intentions, meaning I meant well, or I didn't mean to do that. My motives were good. Listen, my motives are always good, right? But yet we are very quick to judge the actions of others. And listen, sometimes unrighteousness needs to be called out for what it is. Please don't get me. I'm not talking about that we don't call sin, sin, or we don't name unrighteousness. But it is to say that when I want, when my motives of my heart is what is best for you, then I don't come in a spirit of judgment. I don't come in a spirit that is looking to tear you down. But I'm coming to encourage, to motivate, to stir. I'm calling to pull something out so that you can be better. You can be who God's calling you to be. So the first thing is it doesn't look like passing judgment. Secondly, loving one another does not look like gossip and slander. It doesn't look like gossip and slander. James 4.11 says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Do not slander one another. Listen to this passage in Proverbs 18, verse 8. It says, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the innermost parts. Listen, when you participate in gossip, either as a giver or as a receiver, understand that those words, they have a way of getting down into the deepest part of your soul and they poison us. And so if you receive gossip, understand that it's getting deep into your soul. And if you are giving it, Understand those words are coming from deep in your soul where they are poisoning you. Listen to this in Proverbs 26 20. It says, Without wood, a fire goes out, and without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. Like stuff happens, right? Conflicts are going to happen. We're not always going to get along. 
We're not always going to feel the warm fuzzies towards one another. There will be moments of conflict. There will be moments of tension. You know what happens when gossip is present? A small fire becomes a raging thing. Don't give it oxygen. Don't give it oxygen. Listen, we're all here on a need-to-know basis. Now, we like to know the hidden things about other people because knowledge puffs up. There's something that feels good when I know something about someone else that I think not every, but it's not public common knowledge. But you've heard the saying before, right? Like, if you're not part of the problem or you're not part of the solution, you don't need to know. Listen, I will tell you this. In our role here in pastoring the church I have on a number of occasions because sometimes people in churches sometimes people think well the pastor he needs to know everything listen we've been here for like four and a half months we have already a number of times said to people listen I don't need to know about that if you don't think I have to know about that in order to in order for us to pastor you or your situation or your or our church well I don't have to know everything that's going on in everyone's life because I'm, I'm not always a part of the solution. I might be part of the problem sometimes. But we're all on that need to know basis and we all need to guard our hearts. Listen, I get it. We all just want to be able to pray for that person. But we don't always need to know. And gossip destro- destroys communities. The final thing that loving one another does not look like is it doesn't look like using one another. It doesn't look like using one another. Now, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul writes, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. This is an odd verse, but if you remember, we've already read Galatians 5, verse 13, which, which says this, it says, don't use your freedom for your own benefit, but use your freedom in order and use your freedom to serve one another in love. So I want you to see that when Paul says here, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other, that is in contrast to serve one another in love. You know, in this, the day and age in which the Bible was written, it was not an uncommon analogy for philosophers and religious teachers to use the illustration of cannibalism as the idea of don't suck the life out of one another or to use another person for your own benefit or for your own good so when we when i read that language often i think about like fighting and conflict i think what paul is actually saying here is do not be a consumer of other people Don't just be around that person. Don't just be with that other person. Don't just be a consumer of that other person so that when they, in your mind, they have stopped being useful to you. When you've taken from them everything that they have to give you, well then you just kinda, now I'm on the look for someone else. I'm looking for someone else who can meet my need, who can fill my tank, who can all these things. No, no, what Paul is saying is people in relationships, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a spiritual family, a community of faith that is brought, that has been brought together so that we can, um, there is the mutual 
benefit that comes from relationships. No, no. I'm called to be a giver, one who is contributing, one who is motivated by what is in your best interest. Now, if you will see me and act toward me in the same way, well then win, win, win. We all, we all win. But as soon as I start looking at you as you've got something that I want and your usefulness to me, we don't ever say this. I'll tell you that in my heart, this attitude has existed. I've seen this when I look in the mirror. That no, no, there are people in my life that the reality is I care more about what you offer me than about who you really are. And I don't see myself as being called to give and serve you but I'm looking for what you have to offer me. Listen, we don't treat other people as if they exist for our benefit. No, we look at others. We see the gift of God that they are, the gift of God that is within them. And we stir within ourselves a heart that says, I want what is best for you. And not only do I want it, I'm willing to do something about it. I'm willing to act in your best interest. So if we're going to be the church that God is calling us to be, if we're going to be a community that comes together in a spirit of unity, that we need to understand what are these things that God is calling us to do. What does it look like when we are for one another, but also what does it not look like? What are the things that I need to guard against in my own heart and in my, my mind, my words, my actions? We want to one another, each other well. In a way that honors one another, in a way that blesses one another, in a way that contributes to one another's benefit. And ultimately in a way that honors God. Because God is honored when we are being who God is calling us to be. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I want us to just do really one thing here today, and I know this is going to be a bit of a repeat, but I just so resonate with what we focused on in our time of worship today, that God is all about healing relationships, that he wants to restore, that he wants to heal, that he wants to heal our own hearts because it's hard to one another well when we are unhealed of the damage that exists within our own lives, within our own souls, because we have been hurt by others. It's the natural thing we put up the protective walls, right? And uh, because we hate how that feels. And so, uh, but we believe that the Spirit of God is here today in order to release healing to our hearts, release healing to our souls. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants to relieve us of our burdens today. And so I would like us to just pray and lift our hands. And listen, if you're here today and you feel like relationally speaking, like you're good, then we know that there are others in the room that right now are hurting. Pray for them. 
pray just that the, the grace of God, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Lord would flood their lives, would saturate their souls, would release healing and wholeness to them from the inside out. And if you're here today and you're saying, that's me, I've been hurt and I feel like I'm hurting and it's so hard to trust. It's so hard to approach a relationship like I'm giving because I feel like I'm damaged goods. Listen, the Spirit of God is here today in order to restore and to renew and in order to heal. And so would you just put your hands up and let's just pray for a few moments here today. And just say, Lord, we pray right now Lord, we pray for every person in this room, every person who's joining us on uh, YouTube or Facebook and just, Lord, every, you know, each one that right now is hurting, that right now is broken, that right now feels like they have been damaged in a way that makes them wonder how they could ever recover. Just pray right now, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you flood our lives? Would you saturate our souls? Would you release healing within this place? Would you release healing into every heart, into every life, into every soul? Would you heal us of the hurts that we've experienced through betrayal, through abuse, whatever hurts have been inflicted, the harsh words that somebody else has spoken? Listen, I believe there's at least one of us here today they have heard the harsh words that someone else has spoken to you about you and you've allowed some of those words to define and shape the way that you see yourself if that's you I pray right now that the Holy Spirit will bring healing to that will reveal that the Holy Spirit will convince you that those words were lies and that you are free to no longer define yourself or to see yourself through those words but instead maybe right now the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you in a new way about how God sees you about how you are loved about how you are valued So Holy Spirit, we just pray right now for your healing to flood our souls, that you would restore wholeness to us, and that out of our being made whole in you, even while it's a work in progress, as it almost always is, would you raise up here a church full of people, men and women, young and old, that we're committed to this spirit of unity. We're committed to coming together. We know sometimes the sharp edges are going to poke. But we're committed to coming together, to love one another, so that we may be the people you are calling us to be, so that you may be honored in our lives, you may be honored in this community, more than anything, that you may be honored in the city of Albuquerque, glorified and exalted, so that others will see what it looks like when you are king. And we thank you for it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. Church, uh, our prayer team is up here. We would love to pray for you. If there's anything that's on your heart or your mind that we could come along and just believe God with you, then we would love uh, to pray with you. Uh, finally, I will say, church, um, I hope that your week this week is great, that your Thanksgiving is amazing as you spend it with family and friends. And the last thing that I will say is that we love you. Now turn around and find someone whose face you don't recognize. Say hello to them and just greet one another today before you leave and have a great rest of the day, church. Amen.